This week, we're taking issue with the results of the New Hampshire primary. Donald Trump was once again victorious, but Nikki Haley says she is not quitting. Her campaign is gonna rise again, this time in the South. And we'll look at the numbers from Maura Healy's budget proposal. I'm Corey. I'm Sue. And I'm Matt. And this is Taking Issue. Our nation was born here, not with a whimper, but with the spark of revolution. One more indictment, and this election is closed out. That's what democracy is. It's a choice of the people, by the people, and for the people. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Taking Issue. I'm Corey Smith, joined as always by NBC10 Boston political commentator and my at issue co-host Sue O'Connell, and NBC10 Boston political reporter Matt Pritchard. We are all back in the Bay State after a fun few days in New Hampshire, watching voters there head to the polls to deliver a victory to Donald Trump and Joe Biden in the New Hampshire primary. We'll get into some of the numbers uh, from exit polls and, and the results. Uh, but Sue, I know you wanted to ask me and Matt a few questions about our New Hampshire experience. Yes, because as our delighted uh, listeners and viewers may not know, you guys are new to the area, not new to politics, not new to news, but new to New England. And um, this was your kind of first New Hampshire primary from a Massachusetts perspective. And I'm just wondering if um, there were any things that happened that lived up to the hype that affirmed what you thought or anything surprising that uh, kind of dispelled a myth that you may have had it. Let's start with you, Matt. How was your New Hampshire primary experience? I, it was fantastic. I mean, it's it's so, the retail politics of it all is really, I think, what New Hampshire is known for, and that was kind of what I saw, is like voters, you know, from all walks of life and all party affiliation going to any and every candidate just to hear them talk. And it wasn't just happening in these sort of rallies that you often see on TV, it was happening you know, in backyards, it was happening in small diners, you know, just going booth to booth. And what was crazy is like they're going booth to booth and these people actually have like real political questions to ask these candidates. It's not like, oh, just let me get a selfie and you can move on. Like they want to know what is your thoughts, you know, on the war in the Middle East or the war uh, in Ukraine and what would you do if you were commander in chief, you know, to, uh, to, to handle those conflicts. And so you really see the intelligence of the electorate and how clued, clued in they are and how much they expect to be part of the process. How about you, Corey? Were you were you surprised as well at how uh, articulate and intelligent the voters were? I know you know you you keep wondering why it's in New Hampshire. Do you know why it's in New Hampshire now? Well, it's 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 a it's not it's, it's somewhat of a hard question to answer because my perspective was much different from Matt's. While while he was was on the road a lot uh, with our intrepid uh, political photographer Sean Callahan, um, I was at the Armory the entire time. Um, so mo much of my exposure, I guess, to the Granite State primary atmosphere was on the 12-minute drive from our hotel to the Armory. Now, with that said, I, I will say this. Um, I was expecting more. Um, I believe I said this to, to Sue, maybe not on air, but from that, that drive from the hotel to the Armory... Um, you you kind of wound through town, Manchester, you know, through residential areas and through sort of the downtown area. And I think I really only counted maybe like five or six political signs. Um, and so I was expecting to see a little more than that, even where we were at the armory. You know, I know these folks are clued in enough to know where the big sort of media home base is going to be. Uh, so I fully expected to see signs out there. I did see some folks walking around with buttons and and scarves and things like that, sort of the, the candidate swag. Um, 
but I was expecting a little more. Now, I will say this, from what I saw from the Armory and all of our live reports, it did seem like voters were engaged. It seemed like any other election day where you've got folks with signs, um, you know, out there electioneering and, and stuff like that. So I think that was that was sort of par for the course. And then from, I guess, the media standpoint, I was, um, I was you know, happy to see that, you know, we saw some familiar faces from MSNBC, some of the embeds. We saw uh, surrogates for the candidates. I saw, you know, Laura, Laura and Eric Trump. I saw uh, Tim Scott, Vivek Ramaswamy, you know, those folks walking through. We saw... We saw Rudy Giuliani at the Fairfield yes. Inn, uh, America's mayor, slumming it with Several us Several times. That Several was something times. else, um, man. So, so, that, so that did give me the feeling of, hey, we are in, we are in the New Hampshire primary. Uh, I, I can tell why they are so proud of this tradition. And I will say this, what did live up to the hype, as what Matt was saying earlier, I did make the trip to the Red Arrow Diner, and not more than two minutes in there, before I could even get my first cup of coffee, I had a reporter come up to me and say, are you a voter? Can we interview you? Um, and so, and so that was I. I did get to see sort of the following of, of the media and, and how the international media descends on you know these these little towns and these little hamlets in New Hampshire to, to cover the the campaigns. So that was that was really cool to see. The fish chowder was also very good at the Red Arrow Diner. Well, and uh, I was going to ask, did you get the clean? So did you get the clean plate award? Did you finish? No, no. I, I well, didn't. I finished. I did. I did finish. Oh. I did finish my plate. But I, as I was walking out, I did see the photos and we're like, what's going? What is this about? <laughs> um, I will say, Sean so and that, I were so both cool. gifted that sticker. So we uh, <laughs> that's a the fun souvenir from the trail. Yeah, so it was it was it was cool. It was it was it was a different experience. You know, I've, I've in my experience, I've covered caucuses in um, in Kansas um, and, and other sort of smaller midwestern towns. Um, but this was this was it was cool. I'll give I'll give it that. It was it was cool to see what the fuss is, is all about. But as we had been saying, you know, throughout the the coverage, it was a bit of a sleepy primary just because you had some of the bigger names drop out before voters were even able to get to the polls. Uh, but it was, it was still a fun experience, nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, it, absolutely. I think if you had been there any period before, any in, uh, presidential election cycle before, you would have had been even more disappointed at how dead it was. I mean, I actually was able to park on the street in front of the armory, um, for, which you couldn't, you couldn't even get. You used to have to, like, build in 10 minutes from wherever you were going so you could get into the garage and make sure you got parking on the roof. When I did go in the garage, I parked right near the, the door to the hotel. So it was definitely a uh, much flattened and quieter primary experience than before. We'll see what happens as we move forward, won't we? Yeah, yeah. But before we do that, we've got to look back at, at, at the results of this primary. Uh, a Trump win, some are calling it big, some are saying it's, it's really not that big. But I, I think what was big is sort of the gap that we saw between those independent, undeclared voters that Nikki Haley was really hoping were going to help her close that gap between her and the former president. And it just didn't happen. According to, to NBC, the, the polling guru, uh, Steve Kornacki, Trump won Republicans by 49 points, 74 to 25. Haley won independents 60 to 38 by 22 points. That's a 71-point swing, which, according to Kornacki, the biggest gap between independents and Republicans. The previous record was 40 points. And so as, as we, knew, we knew Trump was probably going to win. It was just watching that margin. Uh, but when you look at these numbers, Sue and Matt, were you surprised that Haley just could not do enough to close that gap, even with the likes of DeSantis dropping out, um, and, and even with sort of the dissatisfaction we saw in exit polls with the former president? 
I, I was surprised about two things. One, that more Republicans didn't vote for her, which I think uh, is kind of an obvious, ridiculous thing to say. But she only needed a few more Republicans to vote for her in the Republican primary uh, in order to actually do better. That might have given her a little bit more of a boost. And it's become clear that no matter how unhappy the Republicans are with Donald Trump, the normal Republicans, the Republicans in New Hampshire, which are not nearly as conservative as other Republicans in other parts of the country, that they're going to hold their nose and vote for Trump, even if they have a somewhat reasonable alternative to Donald Trump. And the second part, um, which I found fascinating, is I did get... The other thing about the armory is that people, voters go there to hang out. <laughs> so it's kind of like a, you know, a, a play space for Politico people. And so you could just go to the lounge and, and talk to, to voters who were just hanging out to see the Eric Trumps and the, uh, and the Viveks. But I, I spoke to one independent um, undeclared voter after he had voted on Tuesday, and he still hadn't made up his mind until he got to the polling station. And then he just didn't feel it for Nikki Haley. He doesn't want to vote for Trump. He was mostly a Republican. So he, voted, he wrote in Joe Biden. I mean, so it's, it's, it's sort of like when we talk about this, you know, one thing I learned in New Hampshire years ago was you can't just expect that these voters, if they can't get their person, they're going to go to the next likely thing, you know. So this, this is sort of like the Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump voter. You know, I'm going to vote for one of those guys. And Nikki Haley, for whatever reason, was unable to inspire the undeclared voters that it was worth, you know, it was worth a vote that they should cast their vote for her. So between the Republicans not budging on Donald Trump and her uninspiring approach to the undeclared, I mean, that's where she ended up. Again, she did better than it was expected, but it, the numbers as we pull apart who voted for her and who didn't, doesn't look good. Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, being out on the trail and going to numerous Nikki Haley events over the last few months and talking with all these different voters, you know, it felt like a lot of the time, you know, they would say, yeah, I'm interested in Nikki Haley. I sort of like what she's saying, but I'm also looking at Ron DeSantis. I'm looking at Donald Trump. I'm looking at all of my options out there. It was rare that I would talk with a voter at a Nikki rally when it was like 100%, she's my person. She is who I was voting for. I mean, she'd be able to fill the room, but she wasn't filling the room with those dedicated diehard supporters the way we see a Donald Trump being able to do. And so I think you see that translate. It's like a lot of people, maybe they were willing to shop around and take a look. But at the end of the day, when it came to being in the voting booth, they came home and they voted for Donald Trump. And to that point, Matt, you know, just looking at, at the numbers, Haley's biggest issues were with working class, lower median income, lower college educated voters. Um, and we just saw Donald Trump just continue to sort of dominate that that voter pool. Um, we we also saw sort of the expectations being tamped down. We went from landslide to hopefully a single digit margin in the space of a couple months. Uh, you know, would love a penny for Governor Sununu's thoughts. I, I wonder if he felt like he maybe got too far out in front of his skis because I remember even before he came on that issue, he was he was saying Trump's not going to win. Well, I don't know if he ever said Trump's not going to win New Hampshire, but I, he was definitely saying Trump's not going to be the nominee. Trump is not going to be the nominee. And then even as popular as Governor Sununu is in his own state, he could not bring Nikki Haley over the line. And I, I, I started getting that sense of, you know, the tamp down expectations when we were seeing, you know, reports or, or interviews with Chris Sununu who saying, you know, oh, well, I never said she was going to, she, she had to win New Hampshire. Well, you, you said she was going to win New Hampshire. Uh, so we saw the expectation level being set. And then 
I know it's a small thing, but in a, in a communications business like we are in, we look at things like body language and we, we listen to sound bites and read, try to read between the lines. I know there were only six voters in Dixville Notch and they all went for Nikki Haley. But when she was asked, I believe, it was, I believe you had asked it, Matt, you know, do you think that this will kind of foreshadow or pretend to a you know, big result for her in New Hampshire? And her answer was, we'll take what we can take. And that to me just sort of screamed like, here is a candidate that knows she is about to get shellacked by Donald Trump. And she, she's always energetic. She's always bubbly when she's talking to voters, but you could just kind of see it a little bit in her face that she knew she was not gonna be able to pull the numbers that she wanted. And then when we, you know, we're in the very beginning, or at least the beginning for us, of our extended coverage, and she's getting her supporters up on stage. She's about to take to the mic, and, and I'm sitting here with, with Jesse Murmel, a Democratic strategist, asking, why would you get up there so early if you're either A, you know, not going to drop out, or, or B, think that the, the numbers are going in your favor? I think if, you're, if you think you're doing well, you want to sit this thing out. You want to wait. But I guess she got up there, I believe at that point, it was about at a seven-point margin when she got up there and said, you know, I'm not going to drop out of this race. New Hampshire is the first in the nation primary. It is not the last in the nation primary. Um, so now, now she's on to South Carolina. Um, but, but if just, just watching her, as much as she wanted to exude confidence, she strikes me as a candidate who maybe is starting to see the writing on the wall, just like we saw with the Ron DeSantis campaign. And Corey, I would add one more thing about Governor Sununu, one of um, the Republican operatives in the state. When I was talking to this person about um, Sununu getting over skis a little bit and being very excitable, and he said, you have to think of Governor Sununu as the good version of Donald Trump. <laughs> In that, he likes to make bold pro proclamations, he loves to say big things, he loves to be your biggest cheerleader, and then when you, you know, you're not really getting to where you need to be, he still cheers you on, he just lowers the bar a little bit more. So uh, that was definitely a Governor Sununu characteristic of his personality, and, you know, he's, as, he, as this person said to me, Sununu's always pitching to the sort of um, uh, college-educated voter also to the, um, the, the female voter, the, the old-fashioned soccer moms, as we used to say. So his enthusiasm uh, does sometimes get the best of him, but he said it's always out of the best intentions. Well, and, and let me compliment you both on saying uh, over the skis, because he wore that New Hampshire yeah. ski jacket in every <laughs> interview for about two weeks as he was going about the state. But, Corey, you brought up that scrum that he had with us on, on Election Day, and I found it fascinating, like, you're right, Nikki Haley at first says, we'll take what we can take, and then Sununu goes, you know, we're not guaranteeing it's going to be 355000 to nothing, but we're on track for that. And he's sort of making a joke about it, but it's like, but at one point you, were, you weren't making that claim, but you were saying this was going to be a resounding victory for Nikki Haley, and then he's also trying to kind of turn the, you know, the barrel back on the media and say, none of you thought we would be here and all that. And I'm like, I think out of the field of candidates, if you look out, out of the last four months of media coverage, I think Nikki Haley was probably the one most media were saying she's the best chance at giving a legitimate challenge to Donald Trump. Everyone else is running campaigns that are either uh, missing the mark, not taking their opportunities, or have no chance in heck of actually uh, you know, appealing to the broader electorate in a general election. And so it was a really interesting press conference because, again, I think he was off the mark on a bunch of different areas. And to that point, Matt, I think everyone, and I made this comment during, during our coverage, it seems like every challenger to Donald Trump is running a general election campaign. 
It's all about Joe Biden, which I look, I get it. You want to draw a distinction between yourself and the sitting president. But as I said during our during our coverage, you got to win the pennant before you play in the World Series. And none of them, none of them want to take on, except Chris Christie, want to take on Donald Trump head on. And so as we move to South Carolina, I'm curious to see if Nikki Haley will actually do it. I saw a, a comment that she made at an event today where she says, bring it on, Donald. He has brought it on. He has. He's calling you bird brain. He's, you know, and, and I, just, I just don't understand. And we asked Jennifer Nassour this. We asked Ozzy Paloma this. I get it. There is a balance that you have to strike between attacking the guy who has the Repu- a majority of the Republican base and a majority of Republican legislators at, on Capitol Hill in his pocket. But if you're going to beat him, you got to want to beat him. You can't beat Donald Trump by trying to beat Joe Biden. And I think that was her failure. And I, and I just thought that she had even more of a chance to do that in a state like New Hampshire, where you do have those undeclared and those independent voters who you can go after. Now that she's going to South Carolina, you know, I said this on our coverage, it's one thing to, it's one thing to convince a New England conservative, a New England Republican to vote for you. It's a whole different ball game in the deep south. We know that we know that to be the case. And if you thought, you know, New Hampshire was MAGA red, South Carolina is MAGA red. I I really struggle to see a path forward for Nikki Haley in South Carolina. Sue, do, do you think she can do anything to change her tactic or is it too little too late at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a part of this. I mean, I, I, as I've said a million times, I'm a big everyone should vote, but I'm also a research nerd. So I know if you have the right size sample, you don't need everyone to vote, right, to know what's happening. Uh, and I think that this this lack of Republican vote in New Hampshire is going to be a, a kiss of death for her, even though I think she performed better than expected. And having said that, the South Carolina, you've got the hocus pocus of the two primaries. You've got the Democratic primary that happens uh, at the beginning of the month of February. And then you have the Republican primary, which happens at the end of the month. So it's also an open primary state, meaning anyone can vote in either primary. Just one, though, not two. So if you're a Democrat, you can wait. I think we'll be able to see by some of the turnout numbers in the Democratic primary, which is a real primary, not a a, a primary on the DL like uh, New Hampshire was. So if we see um, depressed or suppressed numbers in the turnout for the Democratic primary, we can expect that some of those people are going to show up to vote for Nikki Haley at the end of the month. But there again, she has the same problem that, you know, let's just say she's got some uh, institutional uh, machinery down there to get the vote out, to to really uh, lean on people who uh, she's done favors for, not like Tim Scott, apparently, but other people perhaps, uh, and um, maybe get enough Republican votes, enough undeclared votes, and enough Democrats. But then again, it's still not, I don't think she's still going to have enough Republicans. And that's what you need, to your point, Corey, to win the Republican primary. Well, and I just think, I mean, I said this last week, I thought she had to win New Hampshire to prove to the American public that this is actually a race for the GOP nomination. Because now if she goes to South Carolina, and let's say she does pull it off and she can win South Carolina, Donald Trump and everyone else can just point to say, hey, she was governor in that state. That's her home state. Of course she won that state. 
I mean, it's, she needed to win a state where she didn't have that sort of history and can show uh, that there actually is a competition taking place here. Instead, we have Donald Trump winning Iowa by a landslide. We have him winning New Hampshire uh, safely and strongly. If he can pull off South Carolina, I mean, where do you go? I mean, it's, it's done at that point. And I'm, I'm curious to know who she can depend on because I, I know the vast majority of the South Carolina delegation in D.C. is voting for Donald Trump. And, and supporting him. And, you know, Tim Scott gave the old Etu Brute moment when he endorsed, you know, Donald Trump over the woman who gave him his job. Um, so the, the, the deck is certainly stacked against her. I, I'm curious to see, you know, I know they raised, what, about a half a million dollars when Ron DeSantis dropped out. Um, but I'm curious to see if she is going to be able to mount any sort of formidable campaign against Donald Trump uh, and, and, and go beyond just the He's an agent of chaos, and chaos follows him all around. Give me a policy difference. Give me, even give me a person, tell me what the chaos is from the personality standpoint. You know, he has been found liable of sexual assault. He's facing 92 felony indictments. At some point, you got to bring that up to voters. Uh, because we, we heard that, and I know in some of the interviews that you did, Matt, and our other reporters did, you know, they, they look at Donald Trump as just dangerous, and even the ones who say that they like, like his policies, they just think that he is a dangerous candidate, and yet he still holds so much power and so much sway in that party to, you know, to even further that point. We're seeing it now with the, with the uh, congressional negotiations on the budget, you know, or on, the, on a congr- the stopgap to, to keep the government open. You know, at, at one point they were going to they were going to link Im, uh, immigration reform and, and Ukraine together. And now because Donald Trump needs immigration as an issue to run on, the Republicans, many of them saying the quiet part out loud, are saying that, you know, we're not going to do anything on immigration because Trump wants to run on it. So I guess it's not enough of a crisis to do something about it. You know, instead, you would rather have Donald Trump sort of use it as a, as a something to bludgeon, you know, President Biden with. Um, so, so, so I don't know. It's, it's, I've, I've been thoroughly disappointed in how the Republican campaigns have been run. Cause I really thought that after 2020 and 2022, they had learned their lessons and were really going to say, we have got to sort of break this fever in the party, uh, of Donald Trump. And they, they just cannot do it. Well, and the fascinating thing, I think, from the Nikki Haley campaign that I've watched is that she just is very locked in on that stump speech. And it's been that way the entire way along. And it adjusts a little bit every time I see her. But it's never that big adjustment, Corey, that you're talking about, where you really take Donald Trump head on. You take him to the cleaners about policy, what I'm going to do differently, how I'm going to approach these issues that you care about as a voter and take it to the next level so that you look at me instead of Donald Trump as the person that can lead the GOP. But instead, we keep we kept getting that line over and over. The chaos follows him. He was the right president for the right time. And it just it was just like a record being repeated over and over again. And at a point as a politician, as a presidential candidate, you have to inspire. You can't just stick to the talking points. Yeah. All right. You want to just talk very, very shortly about the Democratic primary. Joe Biden gets a win uh, with the write-in campaign over Dean Phillips. Uh, who, who appears that he's not going to budge. He's going to continue to come out and, and call the party that he belongs to, call the voters who are voting for the president delusional. Um, even though you had, that, that was some of the more interesting numbers that we saw over the last couple of days. The number of Nikki Haley voters who said, if it comes down to Biden and Trump, I'm voting for Biden. 
And yet Dean Phillips continues to repeat this, this notion that there's no way in hell Joe Biden can beat Donald Trump. Um, if Dean Phillips wants to be able to take Trump on, he's got to beat Joe Biden. And he can't even do that when Joe Biden's not on the ballot. Um, so, Sue, what, what do you make of, of, of that dynamic um, in, in New Hampshire? How, how long are we going to see the Dean Phillips and the Marianne Williamsons of the world stick around? Uh, I, I have no idea. I mean, the, I don't. I understand why Marianne's in the race. Um, she's in the race to sell books. She's in the race to forward her ideas, her philosophical ideas and policy ideas. And you know, when she does, when you do pay attention to her and you listen to her, she's got some thoughtful answers. You may agree or disagree with them, but at least she is forwarding an idea. Um, with Dean Phillips, I don't really know why he's in the race. Uh, I don't think he knows why he's in the race, and um, he was unable to really capture any attention whatsoever in New Hampshire, which we should say for the billionth time, every single voter in New Hampshire, regardless of their party affiliation, is really angry at the Democrats for pulling their first in the nation uh, uh, status. So if all that anger is there and you can't capture some of that to propel yourself, then you really don't have a plan together. So he got in the race too late. We don't know who he is. He voted 100% of the time pretty much with Joe Biden. So we, other than the fact that Joe is old and I am not, which isn't exactly a compelling story, uh, I, I, I don't know what he's doing. I talked with some analysts who felt like maybe this was just an introduction for him, that he's introduced himself well to the electorate for 2028, but I don't think that's why he got in the race in the first place. And then again, Sue, it comes back to that question of why are you in the race then? I mean, I had a one-on-one -on -one interview with him. Dean told me that 20% or better would be you know, a success for him. That's how he would define it on Tuesday night. Looks like he's just about matched that, but definitely not what you would be looking to actually, uh, you know, uh, to, to try and mount an actual challenge to Joe Biden while simultaneously blowing up your political career. You'd think you'd want a little bit more than that. So I think really it's like right now we're talking about Dean Phillips, but the answers to all of our questions won't come around until 2026 or 2027 when he either chooses or chooses not to run again. And if he does choose to run, can he actually get traction then? But see, Matt, that, that would make sense to me that, 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 if, that he wanted to sort of introduce himself to the world if he actually had policy differences with Joe Biden or if he actually put policy proposals on the table. When we had him on that issue during our week of live coverage, I remember right before we interviewed him, Sue and I standing at a computer on his website looking at all the different issues that he listed on his platform. And you went one by one and said, Dean Phillips understands that people need to be able to afford rent to, and have stable housing if they wanna you know, live a fruitful life. But there was no policy there. There was no, there was no sort of proposal of this is what I'm gonna do. He's never been able to specifically say, this is what I want to do, or, or, and he doesn't even have to say that. Just tell me how you're different from, from Joe Biden. Um, and so I think maybe had he done a better job of putting out policy proposals that not just differentiated from Joe Biden, but maybe push Joe Biden to where some in the Democratic Party want him to go, which is a little bit farther to the left. Maybe sprinkle in, hey, here's an idea, thought, or a policy proposal that you may be able to add to your general election campaign, you know, that could get voters, more voters on board with you. Instead, he just went with the whole, the media is bad, nobody's giving me respect, even though it was his fault that he didn't get into the race earlier because he would have had the entire spring and summer of 2023 to himself because we all knew who the Republicans were and we thought Joe Biden, nobody's gonna run against Joe Biden. Who is this upstart 
congressman from Minnesota who wants to, to challenge an incumbent president. Let me go talk to this guy. Instead, he waited until October 27th. And now he's, he's sort of dealing with that. And, and is, in my opinion, is, is sort of struggling to deal with that. You saw him get angry at the media, folks asking him why he's in this race. And he says, you need to be asking me about other things. Well, if you would answer the question of why you're in the race a little bit better, then we could move on to those other things. You know, I think to your point, Matt, introducing himself, he could have taken a page out of Pete Buttigieg's, you know, campaign. You know, I don't think Pete Buttigieg went into 2020 thinking that he was going to be the nominee, but he he grew his, his name recognition within the party. I mean, for God's sakes, the guy was mayor of South Bend, Indiana. And look at him now. He's, he's the transportation secretary. He's got a national profile because he's, he's shared his, his personal story. And I would say probably going to be on a short list, regardless of president, whether President Biden wins or loses in 24, going to be on a short list for a potential Democratic nominee. Dean Phillips may not even be in Congress anymore. He may just go be a pundit somewhere. He's got money. I'm sure he's, he's, he's fine. Um, but I, it's just, it, just, it just strikes me as a, as a missed opportunity. And I just get incredulous when, when people just want to sit and blame the media for, for their shortcomings as a candidate when I, as a member of the media, can point to the reasons why you're being treated the way you are being treated. And, and I haven't even mentioned some of the stuff that he has said about black women uh, on the stump, which are the lifeblood of the Democratic Party. And oh, by the way, we have a black woman vice president, but I'll let, I'll let Dean be Dean. And, well, I, and leave he, it at that. He did give me one of my great regrets, my, my lack of a follow-up question, as you know, is always delightful when you think about it after the interview was over when we had him on at issue and he was talking about how Lyndon Johnson had been challenged as president in a primary and what happened there. And I was so shocked that he said it that I, 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 I thought I was wrong because the president following Lyndon Johnson was Nixon. <laughs> So if Nixon, if, you know, challenging, challenging Johnson or Jimmy Carter is your model of what's happening here, why don't you just say you want the Republicans to keep, to, to get the White House and Trump to be president? But I was so shocked he said it, I thought I was wrong, so. All right, well, let's bring it on home. We got uh, Maura Healey's budget proposal a week after she gave her State of the Commonwealth address, $58.15 billion with a B dollars which is an increase of 3.7% over her last fiscal year budget. She's got new investments in there. She wants to spend a lot of money on the MBTA, not just for operations, but also that permanent low income fare that she mentioned in her uh, state of the Commonwealth address. Um, spending could have gone up even further, but she has decided to trim about 450 million from the budget. A lot of that's coming from Mass Health. Uh, we reported earlier this week that she wants to close MCI Concord, the medium security prison. Uh, in Massachusetts. Sue, what do you make of her priorities uh, budget-wise, and is the legislature going to get on board this time around? Yeah, I'm, I'm busy working my way through it, Corey, and uh, uh, Christian um, Milneal over at the uh, Street Blogs Mass website, uh, I was looking at some of the data that he has pulled from the budget, too, because it struck me I'm not a, a great uh, detail numbers person, but I'm a good directional numbers person, and you know, she is trying to thread a needle here of increasing spending without raising taxes and also making it seem, apparently, that she's putting more money into the MBTA and transportation than she actually is. So there's a bunch of hocus pocus that's going on in here, which people smarter than me will be able to um, to, to break it out, like the MBTA funding uh, 
a huge portion of it comes from the state budget, and she is actually just going to be funding a sliver of the MBTA with this. Uh, and, you know, to her point and to Driscoll's point, Lieutenant Governor Driscoll's point, the increase is less than the inflation rate of the overall budget. So they can make the case we've reduced spending. It's actually going to be lower than a prior budget. It increases in places that we need it, and we're taking money from other sources in order to pay for these things so taxes will not be raised. Of course, my concern in this is um, who, I, I hope the person who has been making the projections on the revenue from the, the millionaire's tax is not the same person who's been doing the projections on the quarterly tax increases because those projections have been wrong, which is why uh, Maura Healy has had to cut the projected budget for this year. Um, so if they are expecting that they're gonna pay for the things in this budget without increasing taxes on other people based on that number, and that number is wrong, uh, then the whole budget falls apart here. So it's it's a nice, I said to Matt earlier, it's kind of like uh, planning your, your vacation with miles that you think you're going to get. <laughs> you know, like you want to sit in first class, but you got to use the miles, but you don't have the miles yet. And that's how the budget struck me. But as far as your priorities go, it is very much what she campaigned for. And these are things that I think lawmakers can agree on. These are all issues that their voters and their constituents are saying they care about. So maybe maybe this will actually be a win-win-win all around. Matt, what are your thoughts? Well, and as we're taping this uh, on Thursday, I'm doing a story tonight on sort of uh, uh, the reactions on both sides of the coin. I mean, there's some groups, you know, the different housing, education, the climate folks, the transportation folks who say, this is great, this is meeting all the needs that we think uh, that Massachusetts should be focusing on in fiscal year 2024, but then you have budget hawks and Republicans on the other side who say, we just went through this whole process where you told us we didn't have enough money to meet uh, the estimations that we had in the previous fiscal year. So why uh, do we have more money going to X, Y, and Z? Republicans saying uh, that, that we need to pull back on a lot of these different things, and, that, and especially when it comes uh, to the money uh, for sheltering migrants. They say we need other solutions and to take a closer look at the shelter uh, law here in Massachusetts instead of just throwing more money at this problem. And so you can see we have this sort of mixed opinions on both sides as we go through what will be a grueling budget process as the legislature gets their hands on this. Yeah, and even as she deals with, with that budget process, some of the things that, that she has done since she's taken over the corner office um, are now not showing, not showing cracks, but you know, maybe some unintended consequences or things that they, they, they thought about work may happen that they're now starting to deal with. And of course, I'm thinking of, you know, it, it's been great that so many people want to take advantage of the community college um, offerings that she has. But now you got people who work in those administrative offices saying, uh, excuse me, Governor Healy, we can't handle the influx of people who want to register for classes and show that you're running into staffing issues and stuff like that. So, Sue, I wonder if there maybe will be some more sort of unintended consequences of, of some of the things that, that the governor has put forward. Yeah, and, and probably you're, you're exactly right, Corey. I mean, I've mentioned my daughter's in um, a community college at Bunker Hill Community College, and some paperwork that she traditionally gets at the start of the semester um, has taken at least four weeks to get. And um, that speaks to me of a lack of folks that are in the office actually working on it because it, it isn't a hard thing to do. So that sort of um, how much does it cost us to do this above the investment 
is, is, you know, the cost of making the goods, if you will, and selling the goods is often not included in um, government budgets and municipal budgets. Um, you know, so the other part of that is where does that money come from? And like many Republican governors before her, I'm sure Maura Healy will find a way to charge fees instead of taxes. My favorite things that especially Republican governors do. So I'm not going to raise your taxes, but I'm going to raise your renewal fee on your license. I'm going to, you know, your renewal fee on your, your auto registration. Uh, anything that the state has its little fingers in, it's going to find a way to get some fees on it. But that is, a, that is definitely a consequence that they should be paying attention. Hopefully it's not the same person who's looking to project the revenue who's in charge of projecting the costs. Well, let's also see the big question is, are they actually going to pass the budget? during the legislative calendar. Yeah, we have till December, apparently, so. <laughs> we'll see. May, still not, may not be enough time. All right, we're going to leave it there. Matt, Sue, thank you so much for joining us, as always. And thank you for everyone watching and listening. We appreciate it, as always. But we will talk to you next week on Taking Issue.